You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Now last week, I started the series on the Ten Commandments with a sermon, uh, the introduction to the Ten Commandments. And, and then I figured after I had to finish my sermon, but it was about halfway done, I said, oh, well, I'm going to have to do part two. And so today's part two, and then during the first service, I discovered I'll probably have to do a part three to the introduction. So we, we might have part 10 and then finally get to the Ten Commandments. But, but really, I think there will just be three parts to the introduction to the Ten Commandments. So, but today is, is we'll look at is, is part two to our introduction to the Ten Commandments. Let me, I'll read from Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 to 21. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land or the house of slavery. You, have, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, your mother, that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be for you, that you may not sin. People stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Oh God in heaven, we come to you now in prayer and we thank you for your law. It brings great wisdom to us and teaches us how to structure and order our lives. We pray, Father in heaven, that you would make us wiser for having come to your law this morning. Would your people be sanctified? And for those who are lost, I pray that they would come to know Christ and believe in him. And for those who have backslidden, I pray they would come home and believe in the Lord and receive his pardoning grace. We pray, Father, that you'd anoint the hearing and preaching of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So last week, what I tried to do was I started by explaining I think the need to preach the Ten Commandments, because I said that this is an age that is characterized by lawlessness. If you ever wonder why there's no sense in our legislature, it's because of lawlessness. They pass and legislate the whims of men, and they call it law. It's lawless. If you wonder why there's no justice in the courts, or rarely justice in the courts, it's because of lawlessness, upholding the whims of men in our courts, and not the law of God. It's lawlessness. There's no justice in it. 
If you ever wonder why there's disorder in society and in the streets and, and in the homes and things seem to be up is down and down is up and left is right and right is left, well, it's all lawlessness. The minute you remove the law of God is the minute that the folly of man begins to take over. And this is where we stand. All levels of society have become corrupted by lawlessness. It's lawless. It's a lawless society. Lawless homes, lawless schools, lawless courts, lawless legislatures. It's lawless. It's absolute lawlessness today. And what the Ten Commandments teach us is our natural obligations to God and our natural obligations to each other. And so you and I have obligations to God. Well, these are recorded in the Ten Commandments. You and I have obligations to one another. Well, these are all recorded in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are our natural obligations to God and our natural obligations to one another. Now, when God enters into covenant with a people, it's his prerogative to pass positive law within the context of covenant. And those positive laws last as long as the covenant lasts, as long as God so determines. So, for example, we just celebrated some baptisms. Well, these would be positive laws under the new covenant. God has mandated that we partake in baptism under the new covenant. It's a temporary positive law. Uh, this is different and distinct from the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are our natural obligations to God and our natural obligations to one another. They never change. They never change. They're always the moral foundation of every covenant, and they're always the moral foundation of all of society. The Ten Commandments, they are the natural obligations that we have to each other, and they're the natural obligations that we have to God. And what I tried to do last week, having attempted to explain the importance of coming back to the law of God and understanding the law of God, is I presented the abiding and binding authority of the Ten Commandments within the context of the Old Testament. And so we looked at everything leading up to the revelation of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 20. And in Exodus chapter 20, we find the Ten Commandments, but prior to Exodus chapter 20, we see that the Ten Commandments were expected to be upheld. God expected people to uphold the Ten Commandments, and when they didn't, there were consequences. There was great, great and terrible judgments of God for each one of them. And then I looked at the Garden of Eden and how, and explain how when Adam ate of the tree or the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he didn't just violate one sin, but he violated every sin within the Ten Commandments, every one of the Ten Commandments he violated when he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what I attempted to do then is distinguish the Ten Commandments from the rest of the ordinances and the statutes and the ceremonies and the laws in the Old Testament to show that this is a unique body of law. It's a distinct body in that it's a package. It's distinct from everything else that was given and legislated and revealed. And that's what I tried to do last week. That was all from the Old Testament. And what I'm going to try and do this week is I'm going to try and do the same thing from the New Testament. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go to the, Old, the New Testament Scriptures. And I'm going to demonstrate from the New Testament that the Ten Commandments remain, that the Ten Commandments remain as binding and authoritative, that this continues to be God's unchanging law under these New Testament times in which we find ourselves. The abiding authority of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. So this is going to be the bulk of my sermon, the abiding authority of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. And then what I'm going to do at the end of my sermon is I'm going to do, deal with about three or four Difficult little passages in the New Testament that people kind of go to and they get confused about the law. Say, well, look, I don't have to obey the law anymore. And they go to these passages and they kind of muddy the water. And so I'm going to go to those passages and I'm going to attempt to deal with them briefly. But I'm going to start by demonstrating that the Ten Commandments are upheld as authoritative in the New Testament. And to do this, I'm going to jump around to a number of New Testament passages. So you might, you might want to follow along with me in your Bibles. You can do that. But all of the passages that I'm reading should be coming up on the screen as I'm reading them. So you don't need to flip around your Bibles if you don't want to. Um, they should be up there. But I'm going to be jumping around a lot. 
Typically, my style of preaching is to stick with one passage and just work my way through it. But because we're dealing with an introduction still to the Ten Commandments and their significance in all of Scripture, I'm jumping around throughout Scripture to explain their abiding authority to us even now today. So that's why I'm, we're finding ourselves jumping around. And even when I get to the Ten Commandments, I might jump around a little bit more, but I'll, I'll stick more in one place with them. It's a different style of preaching as I go through this new series. But we're looking at the New Testament this morning, and in looking at the New Testament, what we're doing is we're seeing the abiding authority of the Ten Commandments as, it is, as they are presented to us in the New Testament. The abiding authority of the Ten Commandments is they're presented to us in the New Testament. And to demonstrate this, what I want you to see, first off, is that Jesus taught the Ten Commandments as binding and authoritative. That's what I want you to first see, is that Jesus taught them. He upheld them as binding and authoritative. This is what Jesus did. And so if we're going to uphold them, we're simply following the example of our Lord Jesus. So the first text that I want to look at is in Matthew chapter 15. Verses 3 and 4. And what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 15, 3 and 4, is he appeals to the fifth commandment to demonstrate that the traditions of the Jews are wrong. So the Jews had traditions. They were upholding their traditions as binding and authoritative. And sometimes their traditions contradicted God's law. And to demonstrate Number one, that their traditions were wrong, and number two, that God's law is our standard of authority. Jesus quotes God's law. That's what he does in Matthew chapter 15. So you look at Matthew 15, verse 3. He answered them, Jesus answered the religious leaders. What he says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So they're upholding their tradition. They're breaking God's command. For, Jesus says, quoting the fifth commandment authoritatively, God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So Jesus quotes from the fifth commandment right there. He quotes from the fifth commandment so as to say that their traditions were wrong, demonstrating the abiding authority of certainly the fifth commandment, but of all the commandments together, as I think will become clearer as this sermon goes on. But Jesus quotes the law, pulls on the law to say your traditions are wrong. So how do you know if traditions are wrong? Compare them to the law. What we're going to see as I make application throughout this series is there's a number of um, religious groups that call themselves Christian, but yet in their practices of worship, they violate the second commandment. They violate the second commandment by praying to idols praying to statues, praying to images. And what they'll do to appeal to their praying to images or praying to idols or statues or to saints is they'll say they'll appeal to their religious traditions. Well, my traditions have taught me this. My traditions have come down to me for 1,000 years, for 1,500 years. And how can my tradition be wrong? But we ought to follow the example of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He shows that traditions are wrong by appealing to the commandments of God. So traditionalism isn't necessarily right. What is right is God. And if God contradicts tradition, then tradition goes. And we see that right here. Jesus appeals to the fifth commandment to demonstrate that it has authority over tradition. Matthew chapter 19 very similarly, Jesus quotes a number of the Ten Commandments. He quotes the Sixth Commandment. He quotes the Seventh Commandment. He quotes the Eighth Commandment. He quotes the Ninth Commandment. And then he quotes the Fifth Commandment, in that order. Six, seven, eight, nine, five. And so you look at Matthew 19, verse 17 through 19. Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler, and he's trying to point out what the standard of righteousness is and bring conviction to him and humble his pride. And he does that by quoting from God's law. This is what he says. Matthew 19, verse 17. And he said to him, 
Why do you ask me what is good? So what's the standard of goodness? You ever wonder that? Well, Jesus then goes on to quote God's law. There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. What are the commandments? He who said which one? He said which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in order to demonstrate the abiding authority of God's law as a standard of righteousness, what does Jesus do? He quotes commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, 5, and then quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which is love your neighbor as yourself. To demonstrate the standard of goodness, the abiding authority of God's law, Jesus quotes the commandments of God, the law of God, notably the Ten Commandments, and specifically commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, and 5. That's what Jesus did. Well, the Apostle Paul did the same thing. So remember what I'm trying to do this morning, is I'm trying to demonstrate to you, is this introductory sermon to the Ten Commandments, as we get into them in a, another couple of weeks, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to demonstrate that the New Testament upholds the Ten Commandments as authoritative, as binding, as a standard of righteousness. And what I just did is I showed that Jesus referred to the law of God as an authority. He appealed to its authority. It's the norm. It's the rule. Well, not only did Jesus do that, but... The Apostle Paul did that too. And so in Romans 13, we go there. And it's interesting because Romans 13 became everyone's favorite Bible verse over these last few years. All of a sudden, this was the go-to verse. You know, because the Romans 13 is the verse that says you should obey the government. Right? But what also happens in Romans 13 is the Apostle Paul defines what love of neighbor is. So we come to Romans 13 and we all of a sudden learn that it's not the government that defines what love of neighbor is. It's God's law that defines what love of neighbor is. And in fact, when the government tells us to love our neighbor, but yet the commandments of God say, you don't love your neighbor that way, you love your neighbor this way, then we obey God over government. Okay? And we see this in Romans 13, and I'll show you how people contradicted the law of God in their appeal to love neighbor over these last few years. Romans 13, verse 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Great, love each other, and by loving each other, you fulfill the law. Great. But how do you love each other? And Paul goes on in verse 9. For the commandments, this is how you love each other. You shall not commit adultery. Fair enough. You shall not murder. Fair enough. You shall not steal. Oh, all of a sudden... Do you realize that one of the ways you love your neighbor is, not, is by not stealing from your neighbor? And what did the government do over the last few years? They stole people's businesses for the sake of their health. You see, shut down your business, shut down your ability to produce things, shut down your private property, seize your assets. No, they didn't say they were stealing it. When someone steals something, they don't have to tell you they're stealing it for you to steal it. But they stole it. You own a store, you can't use your store anymore. Well, it's mine, too bad. It's ours now, right? Well, that's what they did. And then you go on, it says, you shall not covet, Paul says. Well, what did people do over these last few years? They coveted other people's health and demanded that others be locked down for the sake of their health, okay? Coveting. So what I'm trying to demonstrate here is that it is the law of God that teaches us how to love our neighbors. You wanna learn how to love each other, you follow God's law. And what is the ultimate standard of authority? God. And so if God tells us to do something and somebody else, like the government, tells us to do the opposite, we always do what God says. And here the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13, of all places, quotes God's law is authoritative and binding. He quotes, he he quotes in this order the seventh commandment, the sixth commandment, the eighth commandment, and the 10th commandment, and then quotes Leviticus 19, verse 18. The Apostle Paul teaches us that we learn to love each other by following God's law. Wouldn't it have be been wonderful if the churches had been taught God's law? And then people might have had not had so many problems, right? But they, for whatever reason, this is a neglected teaching, 
and it's something we need to return to. Well, you go on, and the Apostle Paul doesn't just teach us that we need to obey God's law there in Romans 13, but he teaches us similarly in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul quotes from the fifth commandment. Fifth commandment, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you in the land and that you may live long in the land. So what am I doing? I'm trying to demonstrate that the New Testament upholds the law of God. What's this commandment? This is the fifth commandment. Honor your mother and father. And not only does Paul quote the fifth commandment, but what does he do? He quotes the promise associated with the fifth commandment to demonstrate that not only is the fifth commandment still valid, but so is the promise associated with it that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God gives you. So there's an application here. If a nation wants to survive, they have to honor their parents. You have to train children to honor their parents. And if you're going to raise a generation to dishonor their parents like we've done in this country, you're going to lose your country. All right? You want to keep your land, you have to train the next generation to take care of things and to honor what you leave to them instead of squander it on their own pleasure, which is what's happening right now in our country. So, what am I doing here? What am I doing? Well, I'm trying to demonstrate to you, I'm trying to show you that the New Testament upholds the Ten Commandments as an authoritative norm or rule. This isn't something we just do away with. Too many people say, ah, I don't need the law, I'm under grace, I'm not under law. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. The New, Command or the New Testament upholds the Ten Commandments is authoritative. Now, some of you might have said, well, you haven't quoted them all. You've just quoted some of them, so only a few of the Ten Commandments are authoritative. Some of you might say that. Well, you have an option here. One option is you can simply interpret each commandment as it is repeated in the New Testament, or you can use the New Testament as your hermeneutic or your point of understanding or your method of understanding the Old Testament. And so what we're taking is the approach that the New Testament is our means of understanding. It's the lens through which we see the Old Testament. So if the New Testament quotes the fifth commandment in a certain way, you should honor your father and mother, then we're going to take it, the, the New Testament's going to take, the New Testament lens is going to take all the other commandments the same way. But one of the very important things that we see as we come to the book of James is that it's not just a few commandments that are binding, but it's the whole package. Everything. The full Ten Commandments... Come to us as Christians under the new covenant is a package. It's, it's a group. It's not just, well, I get to pick one or two or nine. It's a grouping of law. It's a system of law. It's a body of law that we're given and we're expected to obey. And how do I know that? Well, look at what it says in James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. See that? Whoever fail, keeps the whole law and becomes guilty in one point, or fails in one point, is guilty of all of it. What's James telling us? That the violation of one of the laws is the violation of all of the laws. Because the law comes to us is a package. It's a grouping. It's a system. You can't just say, well, I like this one and I don't like this one. The minute you start picking choosing, you're violating the whole thing. And how do I know James is talking about the Ten Commandments there? Because in the next verse, in verse 11, he says, to prove his point, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What's James doing? He's telling us that if you violate one, you violate the other. And he's quoting from the Ten Commandments. So if you violate one of the Ten Commandments, you're violating the other Ten Commandments. I'll show you. And then he shows us in verse 11. Well, if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, then you're a violator of the law because you might have not committed adultery, but you did commit murder. And you can do that with each one of them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 
Because, as James tells us, is that the law is a package. The whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of the whole thing. It's a package, which is very important. There's one other part of the scriptures that I want to go to. And I want to show you that I think is very significant as it pertains to our understanding of the Ten Commandments. And that's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10. It should be up there on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, 9, and 10. I'll read it to you. This helps us understand the Ten Commandments and, and their abiding authority very, very well. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. So, first point of teaching. Who is the law for? Says, the lawless and the disobedient. Who's the law for? The lawless and the disobedient. Look, people that obey the law don't need to hear the law because they just obey it. But people that disobey the law need to hear the law. They need to be brought in conformity to the law. And so the law has been given for the lawless and the disobedient. And how many of you have heard people say, well, you know, as Christians, we really shouldn't be telling the world how to live because they really don't know any better. And, they, you know, we just got to expect sinners to be sinners. Now, you tell me what that has to do with this passage. This passage tells us if there ever was a lawless generation, they need to hear the law, whether they want to hear it or not. And if there ever was a lawless generation, this is it. So if there ever was a time to preach the law of God, it's today. Because it's lawless everywhere. Families are lawless, homes are lawless, schools are lawless, courts are lawless, legislatures are lawless, police are lawless, streets are lawless, churches are lawless. And so they all need the law. And why do they need the law? Because they're lawless. This tells us that the text of Holy Scripture, the law specifically, is written for generations like this one. And guess what? It's not just written for the lawless out there. It's written for the lawless man in here. Because every one of us are honest, there's lawlessness in our own hearts. And our hearts need to be whipped into submission with the sting that comes through the teaching of God's law. And through this instructional norm that is to norm the human heart, we need to hear about it again and again and again. To be brought into submission. So who's the law for? It's for the lawless. So don't tell me, well, you can't tell sinners not how to act. What? This is what it says. Now, I think this is really important what he goes on to say in this passage. Verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy, Profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So what I want to do is I want to go in this passage, and I want to show you that the Apostle Paul is referencing very clearly with typically one word, commandment 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. I want you to see this. And this is what he says. Understanding that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane. And so then, look, for those who strike fathers and mothers. Those who strike fathers and mothers. Well, what's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. So who is the law written for? Violators of the fifth commandment. So there's the fifth commandment. And then what's the next sin that he lists? For murderers. So we just saw the fifth commandment. Oh, look, the sixth commandment. What's the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. Okay, so we've seen the fifth commandment. Then we saw the sixth commandment. 
Oh, look, what's the next one? Ah, the seventh commandment. The sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. What's the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. And one of the things that we learn from the, as we study the commandments is that they include everything within that category. So it doesn't, it's not just you shall not commit adultery, but the broader category is sexual immorality. You shall not commit sexual immorality. And so within the category of the seventh commandment includes the sexually immoral, and then more specifically, because this was a problem in the first century like it is in our time, men who practice homosexuality. The Greek word there for homosexuality is arsenikoitos, and it means men who lie with men, men as a man lies with a woman. That's what it's referring to. And so this falls under the broader category of the seventh commandment, sodomites or homosexuals. So guess, hey, if there was ever a society that needed to hear that sodomy is sin, it's this society. And if there ever was a time for the church to be unashamed and demand compliance to the word of God in this particular area, it's right now. It's not like, oh, you know, we got to be sensitive to this whole thing because it's a touchy thing. No, now, now's the time to ring the bell. Now's the time to speak with clarity and authority. Why? Because the law was written for the godless, for the ungodly, the unjust, the unholy. That's who it's for. So now's the time to preach against this sin. So, well, look, we saw the fifth commandment, those who strike mother and father. We saw the sixth commandment, murderers. We see the seventh commandment, the sexually immoral and homosexuals. Oh, look, the eighth commandment. Look at what it says. Enslavers. What's the eighth commandment? Well, the eighth commandment is you shall not steal. You say, well, that says enslavers. It's not talking about thieves. Well, if you, you probably have a footnote in your Bible, and if you go down, you see the actual translation of that word is man-stealers. Man-stealers. That's what that word means. The literal Greek translation of it is man-stealers. So he's talking about an application of the Eighth Commandment. And, okay, you're not allowed to steal your neighbor's watch, but guess what? You're not allowed to steal your neighbor. You know, I want his watch, so I'm going to steal my neighbor and his watch. No, you're not allowed to steal your neighbor. That's an application of the Eighth Commandment, is man-stealing. And, in fact, there's various penalties associated with various crimes in the Old Testament. And one of the crimes that received the capital punishment was man-stealing. Maximum penalty for, for, for man-stealing was execution. And so some people come to the Bible and they say, oh, you know, the Bible, it, it, it's used to, to make it, to, to justify the slavery that was in pre-Civil War southern United States. Well, if that slavery in the pre-Civil War southern United States was associated with man-stealing, which it was, then actually the Bible condemns man-stealing. So think about that is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Stealing men in order to enslave them is a sin, and not only is it a sin under Old Testament law, but it is a capital offense. Stealing men to enslave them. A violation of the Eighth Commandment. Kidnappers should be executed. So, what have we seen in our text today? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Those who strike their mother and father, that's what? A violation of the fifth commandment. Murderers, that's a violation of the sixth commandment. Sexually immoral and homosexuals, that's a violation of the seventh commandment. Enslavers or man-stealers, that's a violation of the eighth commandment. And oh, look, we have a violation of the ninth commandment after that. Liars and perjurers, what's the ninth commandment? You shall not bear false witness. So I hope you can see that commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 are all quoted, are all referenced with one-word references in this context. And it's important to understand that these are one-word references to these commandments in order to teach the unrighteous how to be righteous, the unholy how to be holy, the godless how to be godly. But it's not just commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. I'm going to submit to you that it also includes commandments 1, 2, 3, and 4. So if you go back in the, in the text and you look at it, you go back up and you see the quotation or the reference to the fifth commandment in our text this morning, or that I'm looking at right now. And the reference to the fifth commandment is at the end of verse 9, 
those who strike fathers and mothers. That's the fifth commandment. The commandment before the fifth commandment is, you guessed it, the fourth commandment. And the fourth commandment is what? Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, but the seventh day you shall rest, for it is a Sabbath under the Lord your God. So you see that who strike their mothers and fathers. What's the, what is forbidden before the fifth commandment but the profane? See the word profane there? Well, the word profane is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to refer to those who profane the Sabbath day. So Paul's using one-word references to the Decalogue. In here, the word profane can be used within the Septuagint to refer to those who profane the Sabbath day, those who treat the holy with profanity. And then you move to the next word. What's the next word before that? Well, we just looked at the profane, violation of the fourth commandment. Well, what's the next word? The next word is the unholy. The unholy. Well, the Lord's name is holy. And if the third commandment is, you shall not take the name your Lord, the Lord thy God in vain, how do you uphold the third commandment? By hallowing God's name. Hallowed be thy name, as the Lord's prayer teaches us. So how do you violate the third commandment? By proclaiming the Lord's name in an unholy way or treating God's name as unholy. So there you have a reference to the third commandment the unholy. And then you go to the next one and you have the word sinners. And the second commandment refers to the idolaters, that you shall not commit idolatry. The word sinner can be used at times with direct reference to idol worshipers. And then you move to the next word and it is the ungodly. Well, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, who are people that have other gods before the Lord but the ungodly? So what I'm trying to point out to you is that commandments, it certainly appears that commandments 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 are all made reference to with one word reference typically in this passage, which is about teaching the unholy how to be holy, the ungodly how to be godly, the profane to stop being profane, the sexually immoral how to be sexually moral and pure. All of this is here. And if you want further details on the argument for this, these one-word references to, to the first, second, third, and fourth commandment that I just noted, George Knight III has an excellent commentary on it, and he really brings this out clearly in his Greek text commentary on this passage. But let me review really quickly what I just said about this text here. Let me review it. If you look at verse 9, and you go down to the word ungodly in verse 9, that's a reference to a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The sinners, violation of the second commandment. Do not, do not make unto yourself any graven image or idols. The unholy, the reference to the third commandment. Do not take your, the Lord your God's name in vain. The profane, fourth commandment. Honor the Sabbath day. Those who strike their mother, mothers and fathers. Fifth commandment, honor your mother and father. The murderers, the sixth commandment. Do not commit murder. The sexually immoral, the men who practice homosexuality, seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. The enslavers are the man-stealers, the eighth commandment, which is do not steal. The liars and the perjurers, the ninth commandment, which is do not bear false witness. So what I'm trying to demonstrate is that it certainly appears in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, 9, and 10, that the Apostle Paul is quoting the first nine of the Ten Commandments to indicate to us that they are all authoritative, they are all binding, and they all ought to be taught to the ungodly, every one of them, okay? So let me give you a couple more quick references to a few other scriptures. It won't take as long as I did on 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, to just point out the abiding authority of the Ten Commandments. A couple more references. So I'm trying to demonstrate that the New Testament teaches us that the Ten Commandments still ought to be upheld and obeyed. So Romans chapter 2, in verse 13, it says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. What's that saying? How do you know what righteousness is? By doing the law. That's, and nobody does the law perfectly, so nobody's justified except through Christ. 
but it's the doers of the law who will be justified according to the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 7 similarly teaches us, verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So what, the law is what? Well, it's not bad, it's holy. It's good, it's righteous. Or Romans chapter 7, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, What shall we then say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. What does the law do? It teaches us what sin is. You don't have a knowledge of sin without the knowledge of the law. So what am I trying to demonstrate? is that the law is the moral foundation for this new covenant in which we find ourselves. Because what does the new covenant do? It rescues us from sin. And without the law, we don't know what sin is. There's no knowledge of sin without the law. And so we need the law to teach us our unrighteousness so that we can run to Jesus to be saved from our sin. It's the law. One other passage that I want to look at one other passage in this section here, and that's in Jeremiah 31. I know it's an Old Testament reference, but Jeremiah 31 talks about the new covenant. And the new covenant is what we're living in. Most of you would agree, I hope you'd agree, we're living in the new covenant. And Jeremiah 31 teaches us about the new covenant. And one of the great promises of the new covenant is that God's law will be written on our hearts. And so Jeremiah 31, verse 33, which is referenced in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 to tell us that we're in the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, verse 33 says, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So what's God saying within the context of Jeremiah? He's saying he's going to take his law, and he's going to put it in our hearts, so that we love to obey his law. Well, in the mind of the Jews, is they're hearing this, the original readers are hearers of this message of Jeremiah, what's the law? Jeremiah is constantly throughout his book, he's condemning them for their violations of the Ten Commandments. And what he's saying is, you're not keeping my law. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my law and I'm going to put it in your hearts. And then you're going to love my law. <clears throat> so the reference is to the Ten Commandments within that context. Now there's other questions that will come up, I know, as we deal to various laws, and particularly the Fourth Commandment, but we'll get there in due time. Let me give you a few quotes from some people of, some churchmen of church history. I really like this one. Contemporary pastor from California named Richard Barcellos, whose book on this really helped me understand covenant theology as it pertains to the relation of the law to the new covenant. And he said, the Decalogue functions, speaking of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue functions three ways in Scripture. First is the basic fundamental law of the Old Covenant. Second is the basic fundamental law of the New Covenant. And third is the basic fundamental law common to all men, the moral law. Charles Spurgeon said, Our king has not come to abrogate the law, but to confirm and reassert it. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The Ten Commandments and the moral law, they have never been abrogated. And in fact, John Bunyan, who was, uh, I've spoken of before in the 17th century, he actually said that the Ten Commandments should be used to evaluate whether or not you bring people into church membership. So if you're going to decide who comes into church membership... Go through the Ten Commandments and see how much they respect them because that indicates whether or not they've been born again. It doesn't earn their salvation, but it indicates whether they've been saved. And so Bunyan said, he said that faith and a life becoming of the Ten Commandments should be the chief and most solid argument with churches to receive to fellowship. You want to receive someone in a fellowship and discern whether or not they should be put under church discipline? Look at how their life lines up. Are they obeying the commandments from their hearts? Because if they are, that's showing that God's given them a new heart in Christ. It's demonstrating it. And Francis Schaeffer of the last century, he said, the moral law is the expression of God's character, and we are not to set it aside when we become Christians. So what I've done 
as I hope you understand, is I've gone through the New Testament. I've looked at even what the, the teaching on the New Covenant is. There's more to come as the series progresses. But what I've tried to demonstrate is that Jesus and the apostles uphold the Ten Commandments is the moral standard. These are abiding and valid. This is the norm. This is the standard that judges human behavior, is the Ten Commandments. And there's a few tricky little passages that people like to confuse, and I'm going to look at three distinct passages that people get confused with. So I'm going to explain the confusing passages, and then we're going to wrap it up. There's only three of them. But I want to look at these three passages very quickly. And the first passage I want to look at is Romans chapter 6, verse 14, which says, For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So people come to this, well, I'm under grace, I'm not under law, so I don't have to obey the law. Well, what's this mean? What this means is, is we're not under law in the sense that we're working hard to get to heaven. So, what, like, when I come to the law, I'm not like, oh, i got to do this, 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 and this in order to get saved. No, I come to the law and I say, I want to do this because I am saved. Grace has changed my heart. My heart is new and my heart is changed. And therefore, I want to do God's law. Or Romans chapter 7, verses 4 and 6 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear the fruit of death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. What's this saying? It says we're dead to the law. It doesn't mean that the law has no authority. It means that we're not working to be saved by the law. I'm not working. I don't, when I come to the law of God, it's not like I do this, 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 and this to get saved. No, I come to the law of God and I say, I want to do this, 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 and this because I am saved. So I'm not under the law in the sense that i got to jump up and get to the law in order to be saved. No. I'm under grace and that God's given me the grace in the heart in order to want to obey the law because I love it. He's written it in my heart. And then there's one more passage that Christians get confused on, and that's Galatians 2, verse 19, which says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God, which again simply says I'm not bound to it in order to be saved. I'm living for God and by living for God, I'm obeying the law because I'm saved. This is the distinction. I don't obey the law in order to get saved. I obey the law because I am saved. This is the distinction. People say, well, you're a legalist. You ever hear that? You're preaching the law, you legalist. What's wrong with you, you legalist? They love to throw this around. And the reason they throw this around is because it's an antinomian generation. It's a lawless generation, so they hate the law. But what is a legalist? Well, if you look at the Bible, what a legalist is is somebody who thinks they're saved by works of the law or someone who adds to the law. So, I mean, I don't have 11 commandments or 12 commandments or 1,000 commandments. I got 10, and I keep it at 10. Why? Because I don't want to be a legalist. We, we just walked through about three years of severe legalism, didn't we? We didn't have 10 commandments. We had 1,000 commandments that changed every day. That's legalism. But legal, but. But God's word is ten commandments that do not change. They protect us. And they reveal to us the way by the, the, the method by which our behavior is normed. <clears throat> the Ten Commandments. The law of God, as I wrap it up, is a flashlight. It's a, it's a spotlight. Okay? Spotlight. And what it does is it shines into your heart. and it's, it's a floodlight, like it's a very bright floodlight that shines right into your heart. And, what it, and, and it shines there and exposes all the little cockroaches of sin. There's that light shining. And that's the Ten Commandments do. It shines and, and then it exposes where all these little sins are running around. And then you, so you come to the law of God, and the reason lost people recoil at it is because they don't want to change their sins. They love their sins. 
But saved people come to the law of God and it shines at our, our heart and exposes all these little cockroaches of sin running around. And it's like, I'm running to Jesus for forgiveness and let's stomp out the sin. That's how, this, that's how saved people react to the law of God. It's not recoiling at it, thinking, oh, this is terrible. I want to live in my sin. If you're saved, you won't do that. If you're saved, if you're confronted with God's law, you see the sin festering, you stomp it out, and you say, oh, God, forgive me. And you receive the grace of God. Why? Because the law is a spotlight on your sin. It points it out. It moves you to action in the process of sanctification and, most importantly, it points you to Christ, the one who saves you and sanctifies you, makes you run to the Lord Jesus. So I'll close with one question this morning. Have you run to Jesus? Have you gone to him for forgiveness? There's no one in this room it's going to look at God's law and be honest and say, oh, I've kept it all. Now, there's a lot of people in this room that are going to say, I imagine, there's probably a few of you who will be like, well, I, I mean, I know I'm not as good as God's law, but I'm probably better than maybe the person next to me. I think I'm probably better, or, or, or at least I'm not as bad as Hitler. When people say that, well, there's a really low bar, okay? <laughs> I'm not, God won't throw me to hell because I'm not that bad. Like, that's, that, I mean, I, can you get a lower bar than that? But it's amazing how people are. Hitler's not the Ten Commandments, okay? You look at the Ten Commandments, and what do you see? You see sin, 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 sin. You know what you hear when you hear the, see the Ten Commandments? Guilt, 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 guilt. You know what you, Shame, 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 shame. It's all there. And you, whoa, I'm bad. Because it, it's a spotlight. And then you come to the Ten Commandments, and you say, I need Christ. I need Christ, I need Christ, I need Christ. Have you come to Christ? Because he offers forgiveness for all of your sins. Have you been forgiven? Have you been washed by the blood of the lamb? Have you turned your life over to Christ? The law won't save you. The law just points out your need for salvation. Have you been saved by Jesus? He does what the law cannot do. The problem's not the law, the problem's you and me. But we, because we got problems, need a Savior. And the Savior does what the law can't do, and what he does is he offers you full pardon. The law is rigid, the law is hard, the law is unbending, the Savior is merciful, he is full of grace, and he offers you cleansing from your sin. Have you come to Christ? If not, why not? Why not come to Jesus today? Believe in the Son of God, and receive full pardon for every one of your violations of God's law.